you have your Bibles this morning, let's uh, <clears throat> again turn back to Proverbs chapter 21. And uh, last week, uh, as you know, we, uh, we really focused on verse 18, one of the greatest verses in all of the Bible on the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and His becoming uh, my ransom and uh, taking our transgressions and it all being laid upon Him. Something that we really needed to stop and consider from time to time and so we never lose sight of it. Him becoming my, my wickedness, my sacrifice for my sins. Uh, so I could, as the verse says, walk upright with God in His righteousness. We looked, if you remember, at six Old Testament passages, <clears throat> six places in the Old Testament that, that really give us not just the facts. We talked about how the Gospels uh, just lay out the facts of Christ's crucifixion. And most people, that's all the farther they ever go with it. They just get the facts of, that's found in those Gospels. But to make it personal, to make it real to us, we have to go back and become one with it really understand what he was feeling, because what he's feeling is all for you. Christians today, and I'm sure it's been true all through Christianity to some degree, but it's certainly very prevalent today. Christians today become saved. They, well, they say they are. I believe they probably are. <clears throat> they become saved. They, uh, they uh, you know, claim to be uh, born again. But uh, we live in a world where we, we detach ourselves from true Christianity. We don't really allow it to impact us the way that it really did. It's hard for me to even understand a Christian who says, I'm saved, but won't go to church. You'll find in the book of Acts that when every time somebody got saved, the first thing they did was get baptized. second thing they did was join a church. Uh, it, those things, you know, we, we talk about being a Christian. We talk about being saved. We talk about having the right Bible and all those things. But Christianity today, its biggest flaw is the fact that God's people, even though they may be saved and they may have the right Bible, they want to detach themselves from the real personal responsibility of being a child of God. And that goes back to not understanding, not understanding the price that was paid. When you and I really understand the price that was paid for you and for me, there'll be nothing standing in your way. There'll be no obstacle that'll stop you. There'll be nothing that will keep you from uh, being everything that God wants you to be and doing what God wants you to do. You know, uh, I, I was reading a, an article a couple of weeks ago, and it was written uh, by a group of people who observe things in life, and they, they, they say that America has moved into the post-Christian era. And uh, that is so true in so many ways. Uh, yet you'd find it, you'd ask anybody if they were a Christian, everybody's a Christian. I haven't met a sinner in 20 years. Everybody's a Christian. No matter what you do, what you go, what you do with your life, everybody's a Christian. And truly, we have moved as a country into a post-Christian era. And we have lost the value of, of Christ's death on the cross in a personal way. You'll still celebrate it on Easter. You'll still celebrate it, you know, on special days or somebody will talk about it and all of those things. But uh, as a personal relationship, we've moved past all of that now and we really don't have, it doesn't mean anything to us. We want to be a Christian, we want to have the Bible, but we don't want to get out of our comfort zone to be everything that God wants us to be. But we just get the facts about His death. But the personal account of that day is what we need. Understanding the price that was paid for you and for me. His very thoughts. We saw them last week, His very fears. We saw the terror that had to strike His heart as He faced what He had to go through and what he felt, and how 
Now, everything in our own Christian life should go back to that day. Every morning of our lives, we should start at the cross of Calvary of what he did for us. It changed your whole perspective. The day he became my ransom. If we really understood that, and we, would, we really understood the ransom that he paid was mine, we'd be a little cleaner, a little clearer of not letting ourselves become hostage to the world because somebody else paid the ransom for us. Now today, we're going to move a little farther into the book of Proverbs chapter 21. <laughs> not very, but a little bit. And I want to look at three verses today and talk about it. And, uh, you know, we're going we're gonna to come through it and look at it. It says in Proverbs chapter 21, starting in verse 19, will be 19, 20, 21. It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. The, guys. Uh, we don't at this point, but I'm going to take a supply of shovels into the bookstore. So you all can get one to dig the hole deeper than you already have just started to dig by what you said. It is, it, I'm not even going to read it again. I'm just going to pick it up. I, I don't want to cause you any more heartache than you're already going to have this afternoon. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. He that followeth after righteousness and mercy findeth life, righteousness, and honor. Drake, would you stand up and ask God blessing on the, on the uh, minute message today? Now, we're going to learn a little Bible today. We're going to get some practical principles. Last week, we, we hit it hard and uh, talked about the crucifixion of Christ. Today, I want to come back. And, uh, you know, uh, the Bible talks about uh, uh, over there in Isaiah, when you learn the Word of God, uh, line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little. Well, that's what today is. Today is getting a little bit here, a little bit there. And in time, it, it puts your whole Bible together. Uh, I can't speak for you, but if I was sitting in your seat this morning and I got some of the things we're going to talk about, I'd be as happy as a, as, a, as a pig in mud because of the fact these are little things that help your Bible go together. And for us, that should be the key. So let's look at these. And like I said, we're going to learn a little Bible today. We're going to look at some great practical applications. There'll be some things that you can apply to your own life, but a lot of it is going to be just getting a little pieces of your Bible to come into a little clearer focus. Now, let's look at verse 19. It says, It is better to dwell in the wilderness than with a contentious and angry woman. Now, doctrinally, this verse, and we know now that Proverbs fundamentally is about the nation of Israel and a wise man and a foolish man faced with all the things that the Antichrist is going to throw at them. We know in the book of Proverbs, from a doctrinal standpoint, there's a, an evil man and a, and a, and a good man. There's, a, there's an evil woman, a virtuous woman. And we know how it all, it all plays out uh, in a doctrinal scenario. And doctrinally, this verse is a tribulation verse. It goes right along, and this is where I want to connect some things for you. It goes right along with what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in Proverbs chapter 21, verse 9. Remember that verse that said, It is better to dwell in a corner of a housetop uh, than with a brawling woman in a wide house. 
Remember how I, I, I took that and I showed you and I gave you the cross references in Isaiah 22 and Matthew chapter 24, and I showed you that this was a picture of what actually happens in the tribulation. It, it's centered around Jerusalem, and the word spreads that the Antichrist and his army, remember now for the first three and a half years of the tribulation period, he puts out a ploy that everything is fine. He makes an alliance with the Jew. He, the world talks about peace and safety, and then he turns on the nation of Israel at that mid-tribulation point, three and a half years. And this is what these verses are talking about. And we talked about a couple of weeks ago how that, that, that he begins to come down and attack Jerusalem. He's going to wipe it out. He's going to take the nation of Israel and, and wipe them out. They hear he's coming. And, of course, there's great excitement and great turmoil and great anxiety. And the verse is talking about everybody going up on the rooftops to look and see here he comes. He's coming down uh, to the nation of Israel coming into Jerusalem. And he's coming to destroy the Jews. They hear the news. They run up on the housetop. <coughs> and then the Bible says, and I gave you the verses as we went through it, they, went, they, they flee from it. Now, verse 19, where we're at today, is the same context. Same woman. But the difference is, the first verse we looked at a couple of weeks ago, they're up on a housetop looking out and seeing him coming. This verse now deals with what happens after they come down off of that roof, and we're going to look at it in a moment, and now we see them fleeing into the wilderness, and it shows uh, exactly uh, what happened. The same concept, just two different aspects of it. Now, I want you to turn over to Matthew chapter 24 for a moment. Matthew chapter 24, and for those of you who've been around here, you know this, Matthew chapter 24 is your definitive passage in the Bible on the tribulation period. There's more information in Matthew chapter 24 on the tribulation period than any other place in the Bible. I would say that all the other places in the Bible will feed their way back to Matthew chapter 24. It's your baseline. It is the definitive passage uh, or chapter uh, on the tribulation period in your Bible. And it says in verse 15 and 16, it says, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet. Stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Now here's what it says, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Now let me stop there a moment and kind of put it into a context for you. There's a great, the great parallels between the Old Testament and the New Testament dealing in a doctrinal sense with the nation of Israel. Everything that happens in the Old Testament to the nation of Israel is a picture of something that's going to happen later on down the line. When you go back into Numbers chapter 35, down around verse 11, you're going to find when God gave Moses the law, he set up some parameters that if a person accidentally killed somebody, not premeditated murder, not malice in the heart, you're out hunting someplace and a dove goes up and you go to shoot it and somebody walks out in front of it and you shoot them and you kill them. Uh, accidental, manslaughter in the Bible, manslayer in the Bible, we call it manslaughter. You're driving down the road someplace in your car and, a, and somebody runs out in front of you and you hit them. No malice in your heart. The Bible says that you're not to be put to death for that, no capital punishment. But it does say under the Old Testament law that a relative of that person can take your life. So what God has done in Moses in Numbers chapter 35 is what we call the cities of refuge. 
The cities of refuge were six cities that are on six mountains. And they're all within 30, 40 miles of any place where uh, somebody could get to. Those six cities on those six mountains are found in Joshua chapter 20, <coughs> verses 7 and 9. They're actually listed for you there. And so what happens is, in the Old Testament, when somebody was involved in killing somebody through a, a manslaughter issue, he had to get to one of these cities. They're called cities of refuge. When he got to one of these cities, he had to stay there. If he went out that night, uh, if there was a McDonald's down the road and he wanted something to eat and get a Big Mac and he walked out of the city and the, and the relative found him, he could kill him. His only refuge was in that city. He had to stay in that city until the death of the high priest. And then he was free to go. In the tribulation period, when they flee into the mountains, that's exactly where they go. The cities of refuge in the Old Testament become the cities of refuge for Israel in the tribulation period. So one place it says, they're told up there in verse, uh, 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 when you therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, he says, let them which be in Judea flee unto the mountains. That's where they go. Now, and of course, he says, let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. You just get out of town. And that's exactly what happens. They look and see him coming. They know now that they have been betrayed. And they come down off the housetop. Don't bother to grab, pack a bag, and they head for those mountains. Now turn over to Revelation chapter 12. Let me show you the companion verse to this. Twelve one, And there appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars. And she being with child cried, travailing in birth, and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. And his tail drew a third part of the stars of heaven and did cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered for to devour her child as soon as it was born. And she brought forth a man child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Uh, and her child was caught up unto God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God and should feed her there 1,203 score days. Now, let me break this down for you. It's very simple. And uh, the woman here is the nation of Israel. The 12 stars are obviously the 12 tribes. Now you have people out there that want to teach that this woman's the church. Of course, that's not true. Now the woman is not the church. This is the tribulation period, not the church. We know from the Bible very clearly that the church does not go through the tribulation period. Uh, the 12 stars are the 12 tribes. The red, the red dragon is, uh, uh, is the devil himself. And in verse 5, it says, the man child. That'll be the first coming of Christ. And then it says, the woman here, look at it, the woman, verse 6, the woman fled into the wilderness where she hath a place prepared of God that they should feed her there uh, 1,203 score days. That 1,260, that's three and a half years. That's the last half of the tribulation period. So this is the verse that goes along with Matthew 24, where Matthew 24 says she flees to the mountain, here we see in the wilderness and those mountains 
are right in the wilderness by which they came through when they uh, took their wilderness journey back into the book of Exodus. So for the record, just so you know and understand, and you want to get this sorted out in your Bible, Proverbs 21 verse 9 deals with the Antichrist coming to Jerusalem and the Jews see him coming. They go up on the housetop, they watch him literally come toward Jerusalem, they flee. And Proverbs 21, 19 deals with the fleeing of them into the wilderness where God will take care of them. When they get into the wilderness, just so you have the complete picture, uh, you're going to find that God supernaturally provides for them just like they did in the wilderness journey. The wilderness journey that the nation of Israel goes through at 40 years of wandering, of coming into, into, into the land, is the exact same route of the second coming of Christ when the Lord comes back at the second coming. He comes back to Sinai where he met Moses, and then the trail is given to you clearly in the Bible. We laid it out here in Institute uh, not too long ago, or maybe it was people ministry, I can't remember. But we, we laid it out as we come through, and you find every step of the way exactly where uh, they, uh, they go. When they have the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Covenant led the way. It was put in the forefront. And of course, it was put in the forefront because of the fact it's a type of Christ and it's a picture of them following Christ. When they were in the wilderness, nothing sustained them, couldn't find any water. Moses, and, uh, Moses smote the rock, the water came out. Uh, a little bit later on, they didn't have any food. The manna came down from heaven and uh, they had all they could want to eat. God in the tribulation, when they run into the wilderness is going to feed them supernaturally just like he did. That's why the two witnesses in Revelation chapter 11 that come back and lead them, one of them is Moses, the other one's Elijah. Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets, two of the greatest leaders that Israel ever had. And God takes care of them just like he did in the Old Testament. This is why it's so important to get your Bible together to understand how the Old Testament images what's going to happen in the future. And when you see that and understand it, it makes the the Bible come alive for you. Now look at verse 20. There is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man spendeth it up. I'm sorry, we're back in Proverbs now. Now here again, we're going to look at the doctrinal context first. And this is very important to be able to see this. And it's again dealing with the tribulation period. The two key words here. And that's one of the things you want to do when you get into the study in the Bible. You want to look at a passage. You want to look at a verse. You want to look for key words. The two key words here will be oil and treasure. Those are our two key words. What we are going to do is we're going to find out what they represent and what they mean. The way we're going to do that is by establishing a context. I tell you guys all the time, over and over and over and over and over again, the number one rule in Bible study before you do anything else with whatever you find, the number one rule you have to do is establish a context. Every heresy on this planet, the heresy that you can lose your salvation, the heresy that you've got to be baptized to go to heaven, the heresy that there's no such thing as a rapture, the heresy that the church has got to go through the tribulation period, the heresy, every heresy on this planet got started because somebody took something out of context. You have to stay with the context. I would tell you the most important thing if you ever want to get into the Bible. And what we do here, what we do here and everything we do, and you'll hear me say it all the time. We do it in people ministry. We do it in, in the Bible Institute. We do it on Thursday night Bible study. Before anybody asks, when somebody asks me a question, what is the first thing I'll say? You know what? Let's get the context. 
Many times people will ask the question on Thursday night Bible study that, that they ask the question, and the question looks like it could, it could be a problem. Only till you put it into context. You have to be able to ask yourself about everything you read in the Bible. When you find a verse in the Bible, you've got to ask yourself, what is the context of that verse in this chapter? When you read a chapter in the Bible, you've got to ask yourself, what is the context of this chapter within the book of this Bible? When you look at a book in the Bible, you've got to ask yourself, what is the context of this book in the scope of the whole Bible? Otherwise, you're going to get screwed up. It's just that simple. It's one of the most basic, fundamental rules of Bible. And of course, uh, uh, it's the way it works. The Bible says that when you want to figure something out in the Word of God, you, you compare Scripture with Scripture. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.13, spiritual with spiritual. The Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20, is of no private interpretation. You and I do never have a right to read something in God's book and say, this is what it means. But it happens all the time. The only right you and I have is to read something and then ask the question, what's the context? You've got to stay within the context. A text without a context is a pretext. You've got to stay within the context. And by treasure and oil, by association of scriptures, of what we already know about Proverbs, about a wise man and a foolish man, this will begin to give us the keys to understanding what's really, really going on here and establishing the uh, context. And I'm going to say it again. Establishing the right context is absolutely essential. You will never learn your Bible, you will never know your Bible, and you will be screwed up in the Bible the rest of your life until you come to the point where you can distinguish the context. All right, now we got treasure and we got oil. Let's go find out what we got here, doctrinally. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 25. Here we go. I don't know of any other passage of Scripture that's taken out of context more than this one. But that's all right. We're going to put it back in context for you. Matthew chapter 25, verses 1 through 10. Then shall the kingdom of heaven be likened unto ten virgins, which took their lamps and went forth to meet the bridegroom. And five of them were wise, and five were foolish. And they that were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. <clears throat> and at midnight there became a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, <clears throat> go ye out to meet him. Then all those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. But the wise answered, saying, Not so, lest there not be enough for us and you. Uh, go therefore rather uh, than them that sell, and buy for yourselves." And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came, and they were ready, went with him to the marriage, uh, and the door was shut. Now, before I explain this passage to you of what it is, let me first tell you what it isn't. <laughs> this has nothing to do with the church. Not a thing. This is one of the famous passages that the charismaniacs use to prove that you can lose your salvation. They'll go here, and because they don't have a context, because they couldn't find a context about anything in the Bible, they'll come to Matthew chapter 25, which the church is not even in effect yet. Holy Spirit of God has not come with the day of Pentecost yet. But that seems not to bother them. They read a verse, they see a verse, they want to make it fit what they want to believe so they don't even consider the context. 
Now, if I was, uh, if I was just to give you an example here, if I was reading this passage for the first time and I knew a little bit about the Bible, <clears throat> here's, how I would, here's how I would get the context. It's real simple. Just follow along with me. We don't have to go very far. The first thing in verse 1, then shall the kingdom of heaven. That would be my first clue right there. Kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are not the same. You say, well, I think they are the same. That's because you know nothing about the Bible. They're not the same. You say, how do you know that? They're not spelled the same. They're not the same. The kingdom of heaven deals with the nation of Israel. The kingdom of God deals with the, the body of Christ, the church. Read Romans chapter 7. Read Romans chapter 14. They're not the same. The kingdom of heaven is the literal, visible kingdom to the nation of Israel. So when I read in verse 1, it's about the kingdom of heaven. That helps me establish a context. Now I'm going to read on. Like unto ten uh, virgins. That would be my, hey, I, I don't even get through the first verse and I got just about everything I need. To set the context. My next word is virgins. Plural. Because I know now from uh, the scriptures, Revelation chapter 7, Revelation chapter 14, and uh, other places in the Bible, I know now that the virgins will always be a reference to, uh, uh, to the tribulation saints. You say, well, the church is called a virgin. Yeah, but there's a difference between a virgin and virgins. You say it's just a little S. You take the S off of Superman, he's just a man. You put an S on virgin, and it's a whole different dispensation. But that's why you deal with it, see? You've got to understand that the words in the Bible will form the context for you. So when you get to that passage, you don't have to read through the first verse that you know now that it has nothing to do with the church. It has something to do with the tribulation period. And then you go from there. Five were wise and five were foolish. By verse 2, I got it all. That's Proverbs, a wise man and a foolish man. See how that works? I didn't interpret anything for you. I just told you how the Bible interpreted the words within its own context to give you the context. And you don't have to do a thing. They that were foolish took their lamps and took, here it comes, nor oil with them. Now we know from the Bible that oil, oil, oil is a type of the Holy Spirit of God. In the Old Testament, when they anointed a king, they took a vial of oil, they stood there, they hit it on his head, it ran down all over his body. That was a picture, symbolically, that he was going to lead the nation of Israel, and the oil was symbolic of the fact that he was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God from his head to his toe to lead the nation of Israel. Oil in the Bible is a type of the Holy Spirit of God. In the tabernacle, when they had the candlesticks and all those stuff, they burned by oil that was in that. That's a picture of the light that you have in you and in me that shines has to come from the Holy Spirit of God, the oil. So here's ten virgins, tribulation. In the kingdom of heaven, five are wise and five are foolish. Five find the oil, Proverbs. Five don't. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, there was a cry made, Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go you out to meet him. Somebody's going to meet the coming bridegroom. All those virgins arose and trimmed their lamps. The foolish said unto the wise, Give us of your oil, for our lamps are gone out. Now you can see how if you don't know anything about the Bible, 
and you can't establish a context, hey, I get it. You could take that verse, lift it right out of the context, put it right in your lap this morning and say, we've got people here, some of you are wise and some of you are foolish, some of you got the oil of the Holy Spirit of God, some of you don't, some of you lost it. I get it, I get it. It's heresy, but I get it. Anytime you want to step outside the Bible, you can make the Bible teach whatever you want to teach. I've told you before, if you like motorcycles, go back to the Old Testament. What do you mean? David's triumph was heard throughout the land. He had the mufflers off of it. You want to smoke dope? You want to do it? All right, get over there in Matthew where Jesus was high on a mountain. It'll work for you. You want to drink? Go over there where Paul stopped off at the three taverns. You can make it say whatever you want to say. You got to have a context. The only thing that will keep you from getting screwed up in your life in the Bible is always establishing the context for what you're reading. That's what we're doing. That's how you learn the Bible. That's what we teach you here. This isn't the church age. It looks like somebody, oh, it looks like somebody's losing their salvation. Well, it ain't the church age. The oil in the Bible is a picture of the Holy Spirit of God. What you have going on here in Proverbs chapter 21 and Matthew chapter 24 is the form of salvation that God is using in the Old Testament to do with the tribulation saints. This is based on Revelation chapter 14 verse 6, which is the everlasting gospel. That's not your gospel. That's a tribulation gospel. Your gospel is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, gospel of the grace of God. Paul said it's my gospel because it was given to him. Back there in Matthew chapter 10, there's a gospel of the kingdom. So right there, you got three different gospels and none of them are the same. But you'll find people who want to make them the same. You know why? They don't know the context. You say, well, Matthew chapter 10, the gospel of the kingdom, that's for us. Well, then you're in trouble because in Matthew chapter 10, they were specifically told not to go to the Gentiles, and you are Gentiles. So you're somewhere where you shouldn't even be. That was the Israel. The gospel, the everlasting gospel is the tribulation saints. The gospel of the grace of God in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, that's yours and me. That's ours. You've got to get the context. A couple of weeks ago, I showed you the difference between salvation in the Old Testament and the New Testament. Probably one of the greatest single pieces of the Bible you ever get. Some of you took it home and you got it in your Bible today. Others, you can't even find your notes on it. But that's the way it is. Wise man and a foolish man. And I showed you how that in the Old Testament, salvation was completely different than the New Testament. I gave you Ezekiel chapter 18. I gave you Ezekiel chapter 3 and Habakkuk chapter 2. And I showed you how that in the Old Testament, a man could have righteousness and then walk away from God and God take that righteousness from him. But when you don't understand the context between how God is dealing with man in the Old Testament and the New Testament and you can't separate it out, I get where you get it. I understand. I understand. I realize where people come up with it is because they don't get a context. Now, the key verse here, I want to show you some things here. I want to put some things together for you. I want to show you. I didn't give you this the other week, but I'm going to give it to you now. Now, I'm going to show you the difference between your salvation now and a tribulation salvation and why Matthew chapter 25 and Matthew chapter 24, when they go together, you see how it works. The five of uh, ten versions. Five are wise, five are foolish. Five get oil, five lose the oil. Five want to go body oil, can't get it. Now, watch. 
Look at Revelation chapter 14, verse 6. When 145,000 preach, they're preaching the everlasting gospel. As I've already told you, that is not your gospel. That is a gospel to the nation of Israel that's going to run into the millennium, that's going to carry on out into eternity. It is not your gospel. Now, your salvation is based, as I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 5, the finished work of Christ and nothing else. But that's not true for the tribulation Jew. Look at Revelation chapter 14, moving on down a little bit, into verse 12. Here is the patient of the saints. Here are they that keep, this is tribulation saints now, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. You know, there was a group over there in the New Testament, and Paul dealt with them in the book of, uh, uh, in the book of, uh, um, I, I, my mind went blank. Who? Galatians. Yeah, Galatians. Thank you. He dealt with them in the book of Galatians. Here, it, it was a base of Judaizers. They had come into the New Testament church and tried to tell them, the Christians that had been saved by grace through faith plus nothing, that they had to have salvation, they had to keep the Old Testament law, and also believe in Jesus Christ. Paul wrote the whole book saying, that's heresy. That's not the way it works. He says, if any other man comes and preaches another gospel to you, let him be accursed. If an angel comes and preaches another gospel to you, he's talking about the gospel of Corinthians chapter 15. Now look at this. What do you do with that? Here's a place where he's saying, you want to hear the patience of the saints? Here are they that keep the commandments of God and faith in Jesus. Exactly what the Judaizers were saying in the church age that was wrong. Now it's right. You want to, you want to explain that? I'll tell you to explain it. It's easy. Context. One's the church age under one gospel. The other one's the tribulation period under an everlasting gospel. In the tribulation, they have a system that's based on law and based on faith in Jesus Christ. Now, everybody thinks, everybody thinks that in the tribulation period, when it talks about faith in Jesus Christ, that that means that they're, 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 they're trusting him as their own personal Savior. At the tribulation period, at the second coming of Christ, he does not come to them as their Savior like he does to you and me. He comes to them as their Messiah. You find the word Messiah four times in the Bible, two in Daniel and two in John. Never one time does Paul refer to Christ for you and three. He's not my Messiah. He's Israel's Messiah. You only find it four times, two in Daniel, dealing with the Jew, two in John, dealing with the Jew, never dealing with the church. But when you don't get a context for that, when you don't understand how that fits into your Bible, I get it. I get it. You'll be with Jesus high on a mountain before long. I get it. I get it. I understand. Context. Context. You got to establish a context. Now, I want to show you something here. Quote to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. I want to show you the difference. Clear and plain as day once you get a context. Revelation chapter 1. Verse 4 and 5. 
John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you and peace from him which is, which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness, watch it very carefully, the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us, here it comes, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. You see that? That verse is the clearest verse in the Bible that the reason you, how you got saved is Jesus Christ loved us and then he washed us from our sins in his blood. He washed me. Do you see that? I'm going to wait. Do you see that? Thank you, all four of you. Do you see that? He washed me. And then the Bible says in Revelation chapter 19, when I get there, that he gives me a robe of righteousness, fine linen, a white robe. He washed me for my salvation. It is my faith in Jesus Christ plus nothing. Now, here we go. Now turn to Revelation chapter 14, verse 12. I want to show you the difference. Revelation chapter 1 is the church age, you and me. Revelation chapter 14 is the tribulation period. You say, how do you get that? You get the context of the book. I've told you before. Revelation chapter 1, 2, and 3 is the church age. Revelation chapter 4, a door is open in heaven. Somebody goes up. That starts the tribulation in chapter 5 through chapter 18. Chapter 19 is the second coming of Christ. Chapter 20 is the millennium. Chapter 21 is new heaven and new earth. Chapter 22 is eternity. That's the context of the book. So in chapter 1 of Revelation, we're in the church age. We get to Revelation chapter 14, we're in the tribulation period. By the book's own context. Yeah, I meet people all the time. They couldn't find out Revelation one way or the other. They have no clue where they're at in Revelation. Revelation, as every book in the Bible, establishes its own context. You don't get the context, you get heresy. Now, I just showed you Revelation chapter 1 verse 5 that Jesus washed me. He washed you in his own blood. Now watch. You notice there's no Greek or Hebrew needed here? Amen. I haven't opened up, cracked one lexicon. I haven't opened up any New Testament Greek to, to, to cut the answer. Yeah, it, 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 this is all clear fourth grade English. That anybody can get it who isn't educated out of their intelligence. Now look at Revelation chapter 14 verse 12. And Revelation chapter 7, verse 14 will go along with this. I want you to see the difference. And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the church age. Is that what I said? Maybe I got got the reverse revision here. Let me try it again. And, and And he said unto me, These are they that came out of the great tribulation. There's the context. Let's go back here to Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. John to the what? Seven what? Churches. So one is the church. This one in chapter 14 is the tribulation. Who couldn't get that? And I didn't go to the Greek one time. Didn't need any nuggets. Didn't need a lexicon. Didn't need New Testament Greek text. 
I just go to the English Bible that God gave me where everything is laid out because that's all you need, and there it is. Now, let me show you something. Verse Chapter 1, verse 5 says that he washed us, okay? Let's see this. In the tribulation period, it's different. She said, how is it different? Just sit tight for a moment. You're awful antsy today. Verse 14, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. You see the difference? One place he washed me, here they had to wash their own. Do you see that? In the church age 1-5, I got washed in the tribulation period. They have to wash their own. That's context. Didn't need the Greek, didn't need the Hebrew, doesn't need a Bible scholar. You got that from a guy today who had a tough time getting out of the eighth grade. You got that from a guy today that had to bribe his civics teacher to graduate in high school. You got that from a guy today that was in the sixth grade so long the kids brought me the apple they thought I was the teacher. No Greek, no Hebrew, no great understanding, just the context. And there it is. Revelation 1.5 says that Christ washed me and gave me a white robe, Revelation chapter 19. Revelation 7.14 says that, uh, in Revelation 14.12 says that, uh, that they, in the tribulation, washed their own robes to get them clean. So the oil here, in Proverbs 21.20, in a doctrinal concept, it's God's system of getting the Holy Spirit of God in the Old Testament with the commandments of God and faith in Jesus Christ. It's not the same. So Matthew chapter 25 is a different than the church age. Salvation in the Old Testament is different than salvation in the church age. Salvation in the tribulation. It's all faith and grace. There's no question about it. But it's based, as I taught you the other weekend, on the object by which God tells them that they have to focus on. There's two verses as clean as day. One of them in the church age, you and I got washed by Christ in the tribulation. They have to wash their own. And that's the system. Now, the treasure. It says the treasure to be desired. Now, that treasure to be desired, doctrinally, will be Jerusalem. You say, now, how do you know that? It's called context. C-O-N-T-E-X-X-T. Context. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 says again, 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 the kingdom of heaven. Again, the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven. Oh, it's at the context that the kingdom of heaven is like a, unto a treasure hid in a field, which when a man hath found, he hideth for the joy thereof, goeth and selleth all that he hath, and buyeth that field. That field, doctrinally, is Jerusalem. The city that the treasure is the nation of Israel. If that wasn't clear enough from you, let's make it real clear. Psalms 135, verse 4. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. There it is. Nothing like a Bible to clear up a seminary education. Nothing like a Bible with just a pure 4th, 5th grade English to understand what the Bible says. And I'll tell you what, that sounds like a great thing, and it is a great thing, and praise the Lord for it, but brother, does that put tremendous responsibility on you? 
No more now can you duck out from the fact, well, I'm not educated enough to figure it out. No more now can you duck out, well, I've never had the training, the professional training. No, that Bible is put together in such a way that anybody with a third grade education can get it if you want it. Now look at the last part of the verse. But a foolish man spendeth it up. Now, we're staying with it doctrinally. We'll get to the inspirational here in a minute. The fool will not see the value of what he has. So he squanders it away and then has nothing. The nation of Israel, they did not see the value of God's city. They did not see the value of God's word. They allowed Baal worship to come in. They traded it for everything else that was out there. And that's where the Jew was at today. And yet he's still God's people. God made an unconditional promise to Abraham that he was going to take care of that Jew no matter what that Jew did. And he has, he has taken care of that. And he is going to restore the Jew. All history in the Old Testament revolves around the Jew. All history in the New Testament revolves around the church. And then the Jew slides in there as we get into the getting close to that restoration. Now that's the Jew today. Once they rejected Christ as their king and their Messiah, which they did. That in Matthew chapter 12 and 13, the Bible makes it clearly, very clear that God hid himself them and puts the kingdom now into parables that they can't get it. And so the Jew now does exactly what the Gentile does. It's amazing if you can see it. I, I can't speak for you, but if I were sitting in your place, what I'm just about to give you, I'd go home. I'd have everything I need. I, it would be worth my, some people are going home. I, I haven't given it yet. It's a thing where it would be, that's exactly this is what I'm talking about. When the Jew rejected the Bible, when the Jew rejected Christ, they had to make it up. Because God slammed the door of Revelation in Matthew chapter 12 and 13. He took the kingdom, put it into parables. He told them that in Isaiah, and now they can't get anything out of the Bible. Nothing. So you know what they got to do? They got to come up with their other books. They come up with a Midrash. The Midrash is the book of interpretations on the books of the Bible uh, made up by the rabbis to get around because they can't get anything from the Bible. They come up with a Midrash because of the fact, and then when you go to a seminary, a, a synagogue today, they don't teach you out of the Old Testament. They'll teach you out of this book that is an interpretation of the Old Testament that the Rabbi sat down and said, this is what this really means because they wanted to get around to all of the verses that kept pointing to Christ in the Old Testament. So that's what they did. Then they got the Talmud. The Talmud is a commentary on the law made up by the rabbis to get around Christ, to get around the Bible. They can make us say whatever they want to say. They don't use the Bible anymore. They refabricated their own books. Then they have the Mishra or the Mishio. It's illegal codes and interpretations also made up by the rabbis to get around the Bible. Hey, they did the same thing that the Bible scholars do. When they rejected the King James Bible, the door of Revelation was shut. So what do they have to do? They got to come up with an NIV, an RSV, an ASV. They got to come up with their own books that will say what they want it to say because they can't get nothing out of the book that God gave them. The Jews and them are in the same boat. Read Romans chapter 1 and Romans chapter 2. 
totally in a posse today, just like us. When you decide you've got to go to the Greek and the Hebrew to figure out the Bible, you are dead in the water. You're going nowhere. You'll get nothing. Or you'll have your Greek little nugget that you'll puff yourself up and think it's a great little thing. You're so stupid, you don't even know where it's at. That book is everything that God gave you, just the way he gave it to you. Somebody said one time, well, you think the King James Bible is the absolute perfect word of God and in English, and everybody has to read it in English. I said, that's exactly right. He said, well, what about all the people that don't speak English? And I said, well, you think they've got to learn Greek and Hebrew. What about all the people in the world that don't speak Greek and Hebrew? I'll tell you something, standing here right now, there's a lot more people in this world that speak English than there are speak Greek and Hebrew. You know, some people embrace stupidity like it's a virtue. Now let's look at the inspirational application. It says, there is treasure to be desired and oil in the dwelling of the wise. Now let's look at it from an inspirational application. Treasure will be the Word of God. It's called the true riches in Luke chapter 16, verse 11. Just a wild coincidence that the one verse in the Bible that talks about the true riches has to be 1611. The oil will be, as we know, the Holy Spirit of God. That in connection with that treasure will lead and guide you into all truth, the Word of God and the Holy Spirit. The Bible says the, the dwelling of the wise. That's a saved man. It says the fact that there is treasure to be desired and oil, oil in the dwelling of the wise. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, What know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which you have of God, and you're not your own, you're bought with a price? Therefore I glorify God in your body. Uh, it, 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 it's inside you. Your body, your house, your temple, the dwelling that God lives in, the oil. It says the oil in the dwelling of the wise. If you're saved here this morning, you're wise. You have the Holy Spirit of God. You got the answers to every issue, problem in life, every secret in the universe inside you this morning. You just not tapped into it. Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 and 7, For God, who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels. There it is. It's inside you this morning. The treasure of God's light, His Word in us. And we desire that more than anything else. And we have the oil of the Holy Spirit of God. And we become wise. God will take that oil and he'll illuminate the treasure of the word of God. And you'll have every answer in life you need. I know you got problems today. I got problems today. You're going to have problems tomorrow. I'm going to have problems tomorrow. You won't go through life problem free. But I want to tell you something. You could if you really wanted to. You see, problems only become problems, and I don't know if you know this or not. Problems are not really problems. We say, well, I got a problem. Uh, what I, no, problems are only problems because you don't have a context for your problem. You got a problem in your life, but you don't have a context to how you got in that problem. You don't have a context to what you do with that problem. And you don't have a context from the Bible how you get out of that problem. When you're a child of God and you have the Bible, you don't have any problems. You know why? Because your problems are always in context. And the better you get into the Bible and the sharper you get with the Bible, the more you can avoid the problems. You know why? Because you can see them coming before they get there. Yeah. 
I don't mean this in a wrong way. I don't mean this in a bad way. If you ever get into ministry and you spend about 30, 40 years in it, you'll get it. But there's a certain kind of person that any pastor, if he's got any sense at all, he sees somebody coming that's going to join his church, he knows he's got problems. Now, he can't come up and say, no, thanks. But he, he, he'd like to. Because, you know, there's a certain kind of person that they go to a church for one reason, and that's to cause a problem. They dress right, and if they were sitting in amongst you this morning, you couldn't tell them from somebody else. They'll amen, they'll sing loud, they'll have the right Bible. That's not the case. You learn with experience that there are certain things and certain characteristics that people have that they have one object in mind, and that is to destroy whatever God's doing. And you can see it coming. Now, you can't maybe can see it coming, but you get into work for a while, and you see the characteristics, and you see it, you see it coming. And the reason why we have problems in our life is because we don't put those problems in a context. We don't see why the problem got caused. We don't see where we're at with it now. We don't see how to figure it out. And many times when we do, we still don't want to do it. Oh, come on, deep down inside it, we like the problem. We're friends with the problem. We know it's not right. We know it's not the thing we should do, but we're friends with the problem. It's an old friend. Known him for years. That's where we go. So when he talks about a foolish man spendeth it up, all of this stuff, in a, in a practical way we see this, that the Holy Spirit of God will, the treasure, will take the Word of God and it will illuminate. And that's why the book of Proverbs, doctrine and inspiration, just about two men, but a wise man, a foolish man. One finds out the Word of God, what it is in his life, and does it. He's wise. The other one doesn't find out or won't do it, and he's a fool. And you go back in the Old Testament and walk through the nation of Israel, you'll find wine and fools. You go through every church in this country today, you'll find wise people and fools. It's all the same. Nothing changes. And the Bible just lays out their pedigree just like you were walking through a pet shop and the guy says, this is the German shepherd, this is the beagle, this is the lab, this is the golden retriever. It's just that clear. Nobody ever saw a poodle and said, that's some German shepherd you got. I like that little white fluffy tail. Nobody ever walked over to the cage with a German shepherd in it and said, oh, look at that little poodle. You know the difference of the pedigrees because you've learned how different they are. You get a context in the Bible, you learn the pedigrees of problems. Then you know where they come from. A foolish man who won't follow God's word and he becomes a fool. And then he wastes his entire substance on things that don't matter. Look at the last part of the verse. But a foolish man spendeth it up. Now the great concept of spending it up is found in the story of the prodigal son. That'll be Luke chapter 15, verses 12, and on down through it, 12 through 14 in particular. We're not, you don't have to turn to it. I'm just going to make a few mention of things here. But the story goes, a man had two sons. And here again, doctrinally, it's Israel. Inspirationally, it's me and you. A man had two sons. One was wise and one was foolish. That wise and foolish man is the theme of the whole Bible. One gets the context, one doesn't. The younger one, he says, give me my substance. Give me my inheritance. I want it now. Now, I want to tell you something. He was a fool to do that. 
You know why he was a fool to do that? And I don't even know this kid, but I've known a lot like him. You know why he was a fool to do that? He had everything he needed with his father. He lived good. He ate good. He had servants. He had everything he needed to have with his father. You know when we get into trouble? I'll tell you when we get into trouble. I'll tell you what that kid's problem was. It's the same problem I got, the same problem you got. That man, the father, is a picture of God the Father. He's a picture of you and me. That father had given that kid everything he needed. He provided a house, servants, everything, food, clothes, everything. But it wasn't enough. You know when we get into trouble? When we forget what God has given us and when all that he's given us someday isn't enough anymore. He had it all. He had it all. And yet he says, I want more. What do you need more for? I mean, you get up in the morning, they bring you your breakfast. Your clothes are dirty, they wash them for you. They, they, you get in, need a bath, they wash you. They give you everything. You, you, they bring your clothes to you in the morning. You don't like them? Say, I don't want that one, I want the other. They'll bring it to you. You walk down, breakfast is laid out. Lunch, lunch is laid out. Supper, supper's laid out. How much better could a father been to that boy? And that boy says, that isn't enough for me. I want my inheritance. I'm going to tell you something. I'm going to tell you something. Listen to me very carefully. You want your millennial inheritance today? God will give it to you. You want to be like that kid and after everything that God has done for you, always provided for you, always given you, you've got the audacity to say, I want what I want. Give me my millennial inheritance. He was a fool. He was a fool. He could have lived like a king, been happy, and when his daddy died, he'd have had everything, and he'd lived forever taken care of. No, that's you and me. The younger one said, give me my inheritance. Give me my substance. I want it now. Give me my goods. Give me what's coming to me right now. I want it now. So the father does. And verse 13, the Bible says that his son takes all of that, takes all of his money, all of his treasure, and all of his substance. And the Bible says that he spends it on riotous living. I want to tell you another principle about you and me. When you get so attitude toward God that you can't appreciate what God does for you, and you can't recognize all that it's put in your life, and you want more, it's always going to wind up being riotous living in a disaster. You know why? It's a simple principle. You'll never appreciate the inheritance that God gives you if you first can't appreciate all the things that he's done for you. You know what happens when you have a kid that's probably a single boy or girl? Family's very rich. And they just lavish on that kid everything he wants. You know what happens to a kid like that? He becomes spoiled rotten. He becomes worthless. He comes growing up thinking everybody owes him something. And that's exactly what happens with a lot of God's people. God blesses them. God takes care of them. God does that. But because of their 
rotten heart attitude. They come to the place where they take all those things for granted. They, they won't look at all the good things, they have, but they're going to complain about all the little things that doesn't really matter. They're going to focus on all the things that just rub them the wrong way, all the things that they don't like. They don't see the fact that God, what God has given them. They don't see all that God has provided for them. They don't see the big picture of everything they have. They are so shallow and have such a tunnel vision effect. You'll never appreciate the treasure that God has for you over there if he gives it to you now because you'll just squander it on riotous living. It'll be gone. It'll be gone. God has all the treasures for us. In his mind, he has everything he wants to give you and me. When you got saved, I know most of you don't understand this. I hear it all the time when I have to preach a funeral of a baby. Half my time is spent on dealing with idiots who says, I just don't know how God will let this happen. You know, when guy said, I'm just really angry with God, preacher. This little little girl died. I'm just really angry with God that he took her. You don't say anything. Number one, a funeral is not a place to get into a fist fight. You want to slap the guy? I'd like to walk him over to the casket. When he bends over, shut the lid on his head. I'm sitting to myself, this is the world that I live in. There's a little three-year-old girl there, a little four-year-old girl there, somebody dying and everybody's mad at God for God taking her. Let me tell you something, God didn't take her. Amen. God's original plan, there would be no death, there would be no sin. Right. God's original plan, there would be no little four-year-old girls in a casket or five-year-old boys in a casket. God's original plan, there would never be any death. He had it set up perfect. It's us, you and me, that screwed up the program. That's right. We brought death in. We brought sin in. We put that little girl in a casket. Because when sin came in, death came in. Don't you blame God for it? You idiot. All ever God wanted was to give you what was best in your life. The moment you got saved, the moment you got saved, he has the treasures for you. And he wants to just dole them out because you need them. He's not going to lavish it all on you at one time. I mean, God may own the cattle in a thousand hills, but he's only going to give it to you one hamburger at a time. He gives you a little here, a little there. He takes care of you. He looks ahead. When something's coming your way, he prepares, he, he, he covers every aspect of your life. And he wants you to have the very best. He said, well, I got a bozo husband. Not because God gave him to you. Well, I got a bozo wife, not because God gave her to you. Well, I got a problem with my kid, not because God made him that way. God has the best for us. The best, very best for us. Now, I need to clarify something because I know... Some of you got saved late in life after already we're in a situation. Some of you got right with God, and I get that. Then God has a way to take whatever you're in and make it great. You got to clarify things today. I don't want nobody going out here and saying, well, I'm really messed up because I did No, no. There's times that people get into things, and then they get right with God, or they get saved, and they got baggage you got to deal with. I'm telling you, no matter what state you're in, God will make it great. Unless you want your inheritance now. Unless you say to him, no, I want to live like a king now. 
You know, the father didn't argue with him in that chapter. He didn't say, oh, come on, son, you know better than he didn't. You know why God won't argue with you as the child of God? You know why he won't? Oh, he may send this two-horned preacher to preach to you, but he knows you won't like what I got to say. But you know why he won't come down and talk you out of it? You know why he won't? Because he already gave you a book you refuse to read. He knows if you refuse to read that book and follow it, you'll never listen to what he says to you. Go. He says, son, here it is. Have at it. Boy, don't you know, as he walked down that road to go to the big town, the big city, he had all kinds of things in his mind he was going to do. Places he was going to go. Women he was going to find. All the things, all the great lifestyle he desired to have. I wonder how it was six months later when he's in a pig pen. And the only kisses he gets then is... Tell you the truth, that's the only kind he got before. But <laughs> I won't get into that right now. You put lipstick on a pig, and you know what you got? Lipstick on a pig. <clears throat> oh, how this is a picture of you and me. God has all the treasure for us. God gave you your health. That's a treasure. Do you know that? That's a treasure. And you know how you know it's not a treasure? The moment you lose it. God gave you eternal life. God gave you arms. God gave you legs. And I don't mean this in a bad way. I watch you guys play volleyball, and I watch you guys play ball, and I watch you guys do this, and some of you guys run great, and you do all kinds of athletic stuff wonderful, and I think you should, and that's good. I mean, uh, I'm not, not against that at all, but I wonder sometimes... Do you understand that God gave you legs and arms more than just to play ball? All for His glory. Our substance. God gave us this treasure to be used wisely. This, the Word of God, the oil for me to be used wisely to, to make good investments, to make good choices, that I take what He gives me and do something with it. God gave me the Holy Spirit of God to lead and to guide us in all the right things. But instead of taking them riches and making good investments, we spend it on riotous living. Spend it up. Now, I'm going to tell you something. A little insight. This is why so many of God's people living in the world after 10, 15, 20, 25 years can't ever get back to God. Had nothing to do with God. It has to do with you go through a life of 20, 25 years, 15, 20 years, and it's not true of everybody, but it's, it's not many can turn it around. You go through that long in your life and riotous living with the world, you know why you can't get back to God? Because you spent everything He gave you. You gave your mind to the world. You gave your eyes to the world. You gave your spirit to the world. You gave your hands to the world. You gave your feet to the world. You gave your body to the world. And suddenly here you are and you say, God now use me. And God looks down and says, I'd love to. What do you got left? What do you got left? Bad choices. Bible says he spent his substance on riotous living. Spending whatever we have. There's a great question over in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 2. It says, 
Ho unto every one that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that have no money, come ye and buy and eat. Yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. And then he says this in verse 2. Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which doth not satisfieth not. Hearken diligently unto me, and eat that you may which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. We spend so much of our time, so much of our money, all, spend all that we do on things that won't satisfy us. And when God gave you something absolutely free, won't cost you a dime, that will satisfy the thirst of your soul. Well, I'm about to tell you, you better take home with you. What I'm about to tell you, you better listen to me. <clears throat> One of these things tucked away way back in the Bible. You need to see this. We see the nation of Israel in the parallels to you and me in my life. They find another God, they get another Bible, they get all the things that they do. And they're headed for a road of destruction, much like many of God's people. But I don't think probably most people ever saw the final act that brought down the curtain on the house of Israel. And when you see it and you understand, I won't tell you something this morning, it'll be the final act that brings the curtain down on your life as a Christian. The final act that brought about Israel's destruction was the, they had gotten far away from God and they took the holy things. They took the dedicated things that, that God wanted separated from everything else. And there was a little room and a little chamber where they put the holy things and the dedicated things. It, it was God's place and these are the things that he wanted. The hallowed things. It was the treasure room for God's treasure in his temple. And they put the holy things and the dedicated things and the hallowed things and they, they were locked away and nobody could touch them. Nobody could mess with it. It was simply given to God and it was his. And the thing that brought their final end and their final destruction, you got to see it in 2 Chronicles 24, 7, 2 Kings 12, verse 18. When the kings had gotten so far from God that they took the holy things and the dedicated things that God wanted for himself and they gave them to the pagan kings of the world. The holy things in your life and my life is what the treasure that's in you. If you want to fast track the destruction in your life, you just take those holy things and give it to the world. Israel suffered as the church today, as God's people today, a complete and total breakdown of any value system that meant anything. And the final chapter in their life was them taking the holy things that God said, this is mine, and give it to the world. Now, <clears throat> I don't want to end on that doom and gloom, so with a few minutes I got left, let me give the alternative verse. I love the Bible. The Wallace Bible says you're going to go to hell, but then you can go to heaven. The Bible says I'm going to beat you up, but then I'm going to love you. I love the alternative. The guy, he never clobbers me without making it good. Verse 21, he that followeth after righteousness and mercy findeth life, righteous, righteousness, and honor. Now, the verse is very simple <clears throat> within the context of 21, and uh, it's easy to see. Doctrinally here, this will be Israel getting three things when the Lord comes back at the second coming of Christ as their Messiah. 
the first thing they get is life. <clears throat> Israel doesn't get born again as individuals. Israel gets born again as a nation. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2. And we see when the Lord comes back that they get life. That life is the salvation of that nation. Talked about in Zechariah chapter 14, Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 11, lays it out very clearly too. Then shall all Israel be saved. So the life that Israel gets is the millennium, <clears throat> the spiritual life of a nation, the salvation of a nation coming alive unto God. The second thing they get is righteousness. They will finally have the city of God that is rightfully theirs. You say, well, the Jews are in Jerusalem today. Yes, they are, but they only have about not even 1% of the city. They have nothing on the land grant that was given to Abraham. The rest of the Jerusalem, they're hanging on by, a finger, by their fingernails. But in that day, they'll get the righteous city, the treasure, <coughs> and it'll be theirs. And finally, they'll have the city of God, that His righteousness will flow from the temple to the whole world. And you'll want to see that, read Ezekiel chapter 40 through chapter 48. Then the third thing, honor. Israel will finally now be the single most honored nation in the history of the world. God told Abraham, if you remember back in Genesis chapter 12, that there was, verse 3, that there was a coming a time when all families would be blessed through one nation, the nation of Israel. He told, he, told, uh, he told Abraham in Genesis chapter 18, verse 18, that there would be a time when all nations would be blessed through one nation, the nation of Israel. And we're told in John chapter 4, verse 22, that in the spiritual aspect of your salvation and my salvation, that salvation is of the Jew. It started with the nation of Israel, even though rejected. God brought their Messiah. They rejected the Messiah. God took their Messiah and turned around into my Savior. And salvation comes from a Jew. Now let's look at it for you and for me. Here's the alternative to the bad stuff. When you become wise and follow after Christ's righteousness, then we can claim three things. The first thing that we can claim is life, a life filled with satisfaction, a life filled with blessings, the blessings of God, a life filled that you grow up with your kids, your grandkids, serving God together, and I'm going to tell you something, it doesn't get any better than that. You can have all the money in the world and all the corporations and be whatever you are all over the world. But if you don't have your family by your side ministering the Word of God and going down through that third and fourth generation, you've missed it along the line someplace. A life of joy, a life of peace, a life of constant fellowship with God that never has to be broken. I'm not saying you won't do something to break it. I'm saying, praise God, that I broke it at 9.04. I can be right with God at 9.05. I'll do better than that. I broke it at 9.04 with in, uh, in 10 seconds. I can be right with God at 9.04 in 30 seconds. All you got to do is confess it. You stay that close to God. Don't ever get far away from God. If you have something in your life that you love so much as you love God, the key to it is never get far from it. Stay close to it. Second thing is righteousness. That's my salvation. We talked about it last week, didn't we? My understanding of the sin debt that he paid. Jesus Christ is the righteousness of God. 
that I got after salvation. Proverbs chapter 21, verse 18. Philippians 3, 9 says, the righteousness of God to me by faith. That's my salvation. God's great gift to man is the fact that God loved me. The fact that God came down and he gave me what he gave me. If I had to buy it, I'd be in hell this morning because I could never afford it. If I, had to, if I had to pay my own, wash my own robe, I'd be in deep trouble this morning. That's why it's called the tribulation. Oh, I'm so glad that God just looked down at me. You know, I hate being born in the years I've been born in. I'd like to been born back when it meant something. But I'm glad I wasn't born in the Old Testament or tribulation period. I'm glad that I got it free as easy as I did. And I know I take it for granted. I know I do. I know I do. God help me not to, but I know I do. I'm human like anybody else. But I won't tell you something. I thank God every day of my life that I got it free. I don't understand preachers. I don't understand churches. And they're all over the world. They're all over the place. They just make me want to throw up. As old Mel used to say, it makes you want to be a, how would that thing go? It makes you want to be a, I don't know. I can't remember what I said. Something about a maggot in a gut wagon. I can't remember what it was, but it's, it's fine. But I want to tell you something. I don't get it. God gave it to us free, and we're going to charge you to get it. If you have any problems, we've got a counseling ministry, but it's $25 an hour. We've got a Bible institute. We all want you to come and learn the Bible, but it costs you all $100 a piece. Where do you get off doing that? Are you, do you think that what you have is greater than the book? I mean, God gave you the book, never charged you a dime for it. What would you say if God says, walked up and down and says, here's the book that will give you every answer to problems in life, It'll help your kids. It'll help your marriage. It'll help you. It's everything you want. You want the magic formula for a perfect life? Here it is. Who wants it? Everybody would raise their hand. We got a whole bunch of copies out in the truck we're going to let you have for a billion dollars apiece. You'd walk away disappointed saying, I'd really like to have it, but I can't afford it. You're right. You can't. So you know what he did? He gave it to you free. He gave it to you free. But that brings up its own problem, doesn't it? When I was 14 years old, for my birthday, I wanted a Schwinn racer. It's a bicycle. It wasn't like your normal bicycles back then. They had real skinny tires on it. Handbrakes. It took me a week and a half just to figure out that the brakes were on the hands and forgot they were on there. I almost hit a car because I was going out there and I... On the old bike, you just backpedal. Well, this one, you just went around when you backpedal. You end up throwing you over the handlebars, you know. But there it was on my 14th birthday, a beautiful white one, beautiful. I mean, just gorgeous. Didn't care for the seat. I, I've never been able to sit on those little bicycle seats. <laughs> Bubba, can you sit on them? No, you couldn't either. <laughs> In six months' time, that bike was a wreck. I destroyed it. I think my dad probably paid back that time, probably paid thirty or forty dollars for it. it. Was back in in nineteen seventy, no, nineteen sixty or sixty four would have been a lot of money, sixty two somewhere in there. I sold it for seventy five cents. It was trashed. I repainted it green. This metallic green, you know, like going to be a race car, you know. I, I, it, the brakes didn't work on it. it, it I, I crumpled the bumper. Handlebars were bent. 
And, and I look back on that now, and my dad never said anything. My mom, she said all kinds of things. We can't tell you what she said. <laughs> but you know, my dad worked really hard for that bike. He worked in a steel mill all of his life. Worked a second job at a gas station. Just to do things for me that I would have to do them. I never understood it as a kid. If I look back on that time, and I never try to, I never try to forget the lessons of the stu stupid things that I did in life because they always helped me quit making stupid choices. But you know why I wrecked that bike? Because I got it free and it didn't cost me anything to have it. And sometimes when you get something free, you don't appreciate it, the value that somebody else paid for you to have it. It took me years, but I got to be a man, kind of a man, but I got to, <laughs> got to be where I'm at now to look back and see and understand. But they paid a price for me to have that, and I didn't understand that price, so I didn't take care of it. And I want to tell you something. We don't understand the price that God paid for you and I to have the book. That's why we don't take care of it. Three things you can have. Have life. Have righteousness. You can have honor. Third thing is honor. Judgment seat of Christ. The day you stand before God and get your inheritance, your substance, that you refuse to take down here because you wanted to be his servant. But now you rightly get over there because you're a faithful servant. Well, I'll tell you, Proverbs chapter 21, these verses are just incredible. As you can see by now, it's an incredible book. The mind of God. Throughout the book, a wise man and a foolish man details each and everything in our lives that we have to be faced with. Well, we'll hold up there. Let's have a word of prayer.